Welcome to another edition of Overcome Out Loud. Overcome Out Loud with Charlie Smith. This podcast has really been created and dedicated to sharing the stories of people that have overcome adversity and challenge in their lives to give other people hope. So many people have suffered in silence, you know, with so many issues that by having such men, courageous men and women come on and share their stories, we're able to give other people hope. And I'm moved today and, and honored today to have with me uh, an American hero. Uh, I met uh, our guest today a few months ago when he was out speaking to a group of, of uh, young students and learned so much in my impactful days with him. With us today is 20-year veteran of the New York Fire Department, retired fireman and survivor of the tragic events of 9-11, uh, Tim Brown. Tim, welcome to Overcome Out Loud. I can't tell you how good it is to see you. Good to see you too, brother Charlie. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. I learned, you know, there's so much to cover with you, and I learned so much that I never realized uh, when I had a chance to to sit down with you and talk about, um, you know, the, the the lost members, men and women of the the New York Fire Department, uh, the victims that were in the towers, and, and also the the members of all the first responders, and and your perspective on that is amazing. Um, and I want to I want to give our listeners the opportunity to hear what I think is truly a, a story of courage, vulnerability, and overcome from you. And maybe just you know, there's 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 a part of your story that that I think is captivating to me, which is you know how you decided to actually you know take on uh, this career. You know, when did you when did you know from a very young age that you wanted to be a a, a firefighter? No, I would say a very specific moment uh, occurred. I was not a very good kid in my early teens. And uh, when I was 15 years old, uh, a, a friend of mine named Jay Walsh told me that he was a junior fireman. This is in Connecticut, where we had, uh, you know, volunteer fire department. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, my eyes got big as saucers and I, and I said, I could be a junior fireman. And he said, yeah, come down on Wednesday night, you know, and, and we'll see how it goes and you can start training with us and all that. And, and uh, he said, but you can't do these other bad things. You, you know, you have to stop doing these other bad things if you want to be a junior fireman. And, and that straightened me out and gave me purpose and mission and, uh, uh, direction and all that. And from that day on, I knew I wanted to be a fireman and, uh, and pretty shortly thereafter, I knew I wanted to be a New York city fireman. So, uh, I worked very hard toward that goal. So in, 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 in growing up in, in Connecticut, and, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's amazing how you talk about having purpose and how, how your, your eyes lit up and, and really having a purpose can change the trajectory of our lives. And obviously had no idea of what that experience would be like the connection to become a New York city fireman. I mean, you know, obviously there's lots of places to be a fireman and there's lots of places to, to be of service and save other people. What, what was the draw? I can only imagine, you know, but I, I'd love to hear directly from you what, what that draw was. Cause you talked about, you talk about that pretty passionately. Yeah. I mean, New York is the place, right? Throughout all, the whole world, Firefighters all over the world look to New York because New York is very busy and has a lot of experience and has been through, uh, you know, many situations that other fire departments are learning about. So New York City Fire Department is the leader. Uh, and uh, especially back then, I mean, back then in the 80s, it was very, very busy. You know, we, it was still... Uh, 
um, the, they called the, I guess the tail end of the war years where there were many, many, many fires. And uh, in Connecticut, if we went to a certain spot up, up, up on a hill, you could listen to the fire department radio. And so we used to go, a, a few of us guys would go up there and sit in the car and listen to the New York fire department radio and listen to how busy the Bronx was or Brooklyn was or Harlem was. And, you know, when you're a firefighter, that's what you want to do. You want to be busy. You don't want to sit around the firehouse all day. You want to be out there helping people. Um, yeah, that's amazing perspective. So I'll tell you, as a layperson who comes from a, a background which creates a lot of fear and anxiety with me over confrontation, it's exactly what I think about. And this is, I think, one of the, the one of the things that I think is amazing about your personality, your drive, your commitment is, and and and, and I want to talk a little bit about, you know, ad adversity tolerance because you, it's like being in the big leads. It's like I want to go where I can practice and be, be good at the thing that I've trained to do, which is to fight fires and to save people. And I think that's such an incredible mindset that, that we as a society are so lucky that so many men and women have, um, because it's unique, it's rare. And, and it's, it speaks volumes about the kind of person that you are and that the people that you've served with are, which, and, and where did, you know, if you could kind of help us understand where is that something that you were born with is that something that you developed was it part of your training i mean it's like i i want to be in the action i know you you traveled out here with your friend uh, jay redmond you know both of you share that that commonality jason being uh, obviously a retired navy seal um give us some perspective on that meant on that mindset tim jeez well I, I i don't know any other way to approach it um i i want to be the very best at whatever I do. And uh, especially that, I mean, it, it's very exciting, right? Little, little boys and little yeah. girls, you know, you see the fire truck and the eyes light up and, and you're like, wow, like mommy or daddy, what, what is, the, what are they doing? And they say, well, they're going to help people. And that's, there's something very powerful in that, uh, knowing that you have the training, the uh, experience, in the intestinal fortitude to, to help people who are in, in need. And, and the, being a firefighter is kind of the epitome of that. Really, all you do is help people. You know, in law enforcement, you know, you have to, you know, um, enforce the law. And sometimes you're hurting people by doing that. But as a firefighter, you're always going to help. And uh, I think there's something beautiful about that. There's something very fulfilling about that. Uh, and if I'm going to go do that, I want to do it in the busiest, best place in the world. You know, if you want to be um, in the military, you'd be a Navy SEAL, or you'd be a Delta Force guy. You know, um, if you're in the intelligence community, you're doing the very best you can do there in in the CIA or, or other, you know, uh, intelligence that, you know, the very top of it. Um, I know people in, in the intelligence community who in the quietness have hung on to seek justice for us, for us who were involved in, involved in 9-11 every day for years and years and years. And they do it in the shadows and they do it quiet, but they're at the top of the game. And even when they find who they're looking for, they don't talk about it for a long, long time afterwards. And maybe never, 
so I think no matter what it is that you find intriguing or that motivates you, try and be at the top of it. I, I don't understand a different way than, than doing it that way. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing perspective and, and an amazing mindset. And like I said, I think all I can say is that, that we as a society are lucky that there are people built like you. And, and I, I was reflecting as you were talking, you know, imagining you guys in Connecticut, looking out over New York city and, and, and listening to the radio. And, you know, as a tourist who's traveled to New York city, I grew up in, uh, in, in Southern Maine. I went to school in Connecticut, spent a lot of time in, in New York city. I don't think I've really ever taken stock of the sirens as anything but background noise until I met someone like you who, who knew that that was a calling for them to get into action, to help people. It, it serves as such a different dynamic. And I think when you talk about New York being not just the hotbed of activity, there's, there's something special about being a New York city firefighter. And I, you know, I know this is going to play into our story, but the, the, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, you know, the camaraderie, the, the, the fellowship, the, the, I've got your, I've got your back. We're doing this together whatever with that, that seems to just ooze out of being a New York city fireman. And, and, you know, that's a, that's as an external kind of outsider looking in. And can you maybe, because I know that's going to, going to carry into, you know, what we experienced, what you experienced and, and your brothers and sisters experienced, but is that, is that perception accurate? It is a hundred percent accurate. Uh, it, it, I mean, that occurs in other places too. My, Niece Taylor is a firefighter up in Providence, and I know Providence, Rhode Island, and I know that um, they have similar camaraderie in in the Providence Fire Department that we have here. So it, it's it's an incredible blessing that in my life I had two families. I had yeah. my mom and dad and siblings. And I had the New York City Fire Department. I still have, even though I'm retired, it's still a brotherhood for me. I was hanging out with the guys from the uh, Emerald Society bagpipe band yesterday, uh, who I just ran into. And it, you know, it was the same. It was beautiful. I was really happy to see some of my friends who I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, and I, I just feel like the luckiest guy in the world to have been able to be a part of that and on on the bumper stickers you know one bumper sticker on the new york city fireman's car after 9 11 said never forget and the other one said on heaven and earth still the greatest job in the world wow. and so even after what happened to us and i had to take a hard swallow there yeah uh, it is still the greatest job in the world. And I would recommend it to any, anyone, you know, especially like military coming back when they are lost a little bit and can't find their, their purpose or whatever, go in the fire department. Even if, even if it's a volunteer fire department where you are, get involved because it's a similar camaraderie in the firehouse that there is in units in the military. Uh, and I, I just feel like I, I was given a gift in being a New York City fireman, even though I lost a hundred of my friends on 9-11 uh, and all the suffering that's been since then, it was still the greatest job in the world. And, and I would do it again if I was a young man, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I would do the same thing. Uh. 
what a what 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 a testimony to 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 commitment what a testimony to passion and and purpose and you know what's not lost on me is as we sit here on august 5th that we're you know we're we're less than a month away from the anniversary of of the events of of 9-11 and you know to hear and i think when i hear the description it's it's tim brown is a tireless reminder and advocate in so many ways for the losses and and the consequences that were experienced and i know it takes I, I just know from looking in your eyes, you know, having, you know, doing as much as you're doing that, you know, it can't help but take a little piece of your soul, a little piece of your heart with you every time you have to share this, but you share it for your, you share it for your brothers, you share it for your sisters, you do this because you don't want to forget. And even though it is and remains, you know, that, that incredible profession that, that we experienced a, a, a tragedy and you described it to me in a way, by the way, I've never heard it before. And we'll, and we'll talk a little bit about your views on on what happened and, and it wasn't just a loss and they weren't taken from us you have a, a a very direct and specific way of describing that loss and so you know obviously nothing could prepare you for for this you know you've you've fought a lot of fires you've been to a lot of accident scenes you know you wake up on 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 september 11th and it's 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 another day where were you stationed and 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 kind of what what is what is an, what did a normal day look like and how did that turn around and change for you forever I had moved, so most of my career was in the Bronx. I, I wound up um, in Rescue Three, which is uh, the special operations unit for Bronx and Harlem and Washington Heights. And so for seven years, I was there, uh, and we would respond um, to the, the more major disasters, emergencies, more specialized rescue, building collapses, things like that. Um, and we, we, we were very busy and I spent seven years there. I had become best friends with Captain Terry Hatton, who was uh, at, at, on 9-11, the captain of Rescue One, but he was highly uh, respect, respected by the leadership of the New York City Fire Department. And that's why he was chosen to be the captain of Rescue One, the premier elite rescue company of the kind of the Manhattan Fire Department. And, and Terry, was my my boy until he met Beth. And then it was me and Terry and Beth hanging out all together. And and then it was like the, the three of us. And uh, Beth was Mayor Giuliani's assistant. So through that, we got to know the mayor very well uh, through Beth. And um, they kept asking me to kind of hang up my helmet and work for the mayor. And I, I was able to resist for a couple of years, but eventually I said, uh, okay. And so I hung up the helmet and I put on a tie and I went to work in the mayor's office of emergency management for Mayor Giuliani. Uh, it was a hard decision for me, but uh, you know, he needed the help and um, it was time to go. So that's, that's where I was on the morning of September 11th, 2001. Uh, I had been promoted within that group. Uh, I was a supervisor of field operations. There were about 15 uh, first responders in that group. And uh, I, I would go in every morning early to work, 730, um, 8 o'clock, and I'd go to the cafeteria at Seven World Trade Center, which was where our office was. 
and I would sit down, relax, eat my Cheerios, read the newspaper because, or all the newspapers, because we didn't have smartphones or anything like that back then. Right. I wanted to know every morning. I wanted to, to kind of take the temperature of the city. I wanted to know what was happening. I would read through for articles about things that might impact our day um, and things that we should be keeping an eye on. And at 8.46, the power went out in our building. And this building, Seven World Trade Center, was a modern high-rise building. Very unusual for the power to go out. And within five seconds, we got power again. So I knew we were on our backup uh, emergency generators. And I knew something had happened, but I didn't know what. In this five seconds, the people at the glass facing the North Tower all at once stood up and ran screaming toward the exit. So they were running by me. And I actually grabbed one young lady by the shoulders and kind of had to shake her back to reality. And I said, what happened? And she said, a plane just hit the tower. And that's how, that's how I first found out about it. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I, I knew it was bad, but it was something that had happened before in New York City. You know, we had had helicopters or planes run into high-rise buildings. Um, I, I, you know, I think automatically everyone kind of thought something like it was a little Cessna, the, the pilot had a heart attack and, you know, went astray and hit the tower. So that's what I thought. And I went up in the elevator in our building up to the 23rd floor where our emergency operations center was. And I wanted to ensure that we were doing a full activation. So I went to our watch command, which is our listening post, which listens to all the police and fire radios and it's our communications hub. And it was buzzing. Uh, and I, the supervisor there, Mike Lee, I yelled to him, you okay, full activation. And he gave me the thumbs up. They had to make 150 phone calls as quick, quickly as possible. Then I ran over to our emergency operations center, which was like a big kind of Star Wars with screens and computers and everything. Uh, state of the art, modern. Uh, the supervisor, Mike Berkowitz there was already on deck. He was already powering up the whole room, all the computers, 150 workstations, getting all the TV screens and plasma screens up and running. He gave me the thumbs up. So we were set there. My job was to go to the, uh, to the incident and assist the incident commander. We were never the incident commanders, but we would help the incident commander with everything they needed outside of their own job. So for this one, it's the fire chief. My job was to go to the fire chief and help him with things outside of the fire department. So you're there to bring the full weight of, of the mayor's office and, and the emergency response resources that the city of New York has to, to bear for the, for, the, for the benefit and the use of the first responders and the, and the guy who's on scene leading the charge. And, and, and this had just become automatic for you. your team fires up. You, you, you're, as you said, I think that narrative, by the way, was, was pretty common. I mean, we just, we just had no idea what we were in for when, when this incident occurs, but you don't play it. You, you don't play it anyway. You just play it. Like we've got a, we've got a, an event and we've got to respond. And, and 
uh, kind of your training takes over as to where you're going to go and what you're going to do. Absolutely right. Uh, I went down to my car, which was parked in front. I had like undercover police car um, kind of thing. And uh, I opened the truck trunk up and I took off my tie and my dress shirt and I put on the raid jacket that said mayor's office on the breast and big on the back and uh, my heavy leather boots and my this stupid green helmet they made us wear to identify us. And we're trained as firefighters that you can, uh, you, before you go into a building under that's in the middle of being destroyed, you want to look at three sides of the building to get a good size up in your head. So whether a building's on fire or um, collapsing or uh, a plane hit it, you know, you want to try and get a, an idea of what's happening to that building. Yeah, makes sense. So I was at the street level on VC Street, and I had, in order to look around the other side of the North Tower, I had to go up a level to the plaza level. So I ran up a, a, an outdoor concrete staircase to get up to the plaza level. And uh, uh, that staircase later on becomes very famous because it becomes known as the survivor staircase. And it is the biggest artifact in the 9-11 museum today because so many people after I ran up, so many people ran down to get away from the towers uh, and they lived. So it, that staircase probably saved thousands of people's lives. But wow. this, is early, this is early on and I went up and I went to the plaza level and I, I went over where the plaza was in between the World Trade Center complex and it was loaded with debris, parts of building, parts of plane that was on fire and that dark black smoke and if you remember in the videos, all the paper fluttering down from the offices up in the building. And that's what the scene looked like. And I, I, a little bit of Armageddon. And so I started to think to myself, this might be bigger than I thought. Uh, I'm at the bottom of the tower and I'm looking up 80 stories to try and see if I can get an idea of what's happening up there and I'm underneath it and it's just too high and too far away. And it's hard for me to get any good size up. But you're getting a, you're getting a sense from the debris field and the, and the amount of stuff that's coming down, you know, you're, I guess, you know, for lack of a better term, you'll call them instincts that, that, that your, your heart started to tell you, your mind started to tell you that, you know, th this is, this is going to be, this is going to be a bigger issue. Yeah, this is going to be exactly right. I don't know how big, but it's going to be a bigger issue. Uh, and, and so, how does how does this progress? I mean, I'm you know, I think I'm I think I share the feelings of everybody who are just captivated by the firsthand experience that I think you know few of us ever have uh, a peek into. I mean, you, you you know, the worst the worst of this is about to come. And and so, do you are, you're you're just managing the situation? You know, kind of blocking and tackling, going through your protocols of of how to assemble a team and how to get everybody deployed and how to how to fight this incident. Yeah, I mean, I have to get into the to the building. I have to get into the the command post, um, and and uh, start dealing with uh, all the different groups that are rushing to help. Right. So, I I went into the building. This is the north tower. I went into the building, and 
uh, I was still up one level. So I had to go down one level to the street level where the lo lobby was, where the fire command station was. And there was an escalator and there were hundreds of civilians trying to get on that escalator to go down, to go down again, to go underground and get out. That's how they were being directed. So it was hundreds of office workers who were not doing what you thought they might be doing. They, they were not pushing in, shoving and trampling each other out of the way. In fact, it was the opposite. For every person who was disabled, obese, injured, pregnant, there were four or five office workers, not cops or firemen, office workers who were helping that person. And in my head, I said, no matter what happens to us today, we're going to be okay because that's the true human spirit. The true human spirit is good. When someone wow. trips and falls in front of us, we reach down and help them up, right? That's what we do. We're good. There's a percentage that aren't good. But by, by far, the, spirit, the, the human spirit is very good and we help each other. And, and Charlie, that's what I'm witnessing right here in front of me now, you know, in, in, in getting on this escalator. They, they were helping each other out, you know? Yeah, you saw the, the true, and, and I have to tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm, as you speak, I think everybody will be imagining, you know, what this uh, environment must be like. And, and that is what, what rings in, in my head and is just, it, it feels like chaos, but, but for you to witness the true heart and soul and nature of humanity at work in crisis is just so refreshing and so hopeful for me to hear, even as, as this story darkens, that we're, we're, we're left with this glimmer, this, as you called it, this ray of light you know, that, that is the goodness of, of society. It was beautiful. Wow. It, it, Pat, Patty Brown, you know, uh, Captain Patty Brown, who was a famous New York fireman who was murdered on September 11th. And, and one of my very best friends uh, would say to that, it's kind of beautiful, you know? And, and he would say it because that's what he thought, but he wasn't sure if you agreed with him. And it was kind of how he thought, but he wasn't sure if you agreed. And that's, that's, I can hear his voice in my head right now saying, that was kind of beautiful, right? And yeah. Yeah, that's so, what a nice, what a nice memory, because I, I don't know if you were listening, if you heard the language that, that Tim uses, it, it's, when I met him, it was the first time I'd ever heard it. We've heard of those we lost. We've heard of those that were taken from us. But as a result of what occurred at the World Transit Center on that morning, Tim will tell you that what occurred to the men and women of New York City, the first responders, the civilians, the office workers, was that they were murdered. And I'd, I'd, I'd never heard up until I met Tim Brown that description. It, it cut to my very core to think of the context of what had happened that way and and I've never been the same since, to be honest with you, Tim, and I don't want to lose. I mean, I know the, the, the event, the murder has occurred now. I mean, you know, we've already lost. We don't know how many are up there as of right now that can't get down. But, but, you know, is that, is that a description that you've always used or, or as soon as you found out it was a terrorist attack, you turned from languaging that as a loss or a taking to, to the murder of, of your, your fellow men and women and residents in New York city. It's a, uh, to me, it's it, it it just 
strikes right at my core. I, I would say that I reacquired that because in 2009 and 2010, when I was doing some activism in the media on behalf of the 9-11 families, people were trying to change the narrative of what happened that day and who did it. Uh, and they, they pushed me, uh, and, and I'm the wrong guy to push with this stuff because yeah, I'll you like are. That. Yeah, you are. And, and, and so I, I, I decided that I wanted to tell the whole truth, not part of the truth, the whole truth. And in the whole truth, I, I call it the heroes and the horrors of 9-11, right? But the whole truth is that 2,977 innocent human beings were murdered by radical Islamist terrorists. And that's the truth. And, and no one can ever dispute that. That is a fact. And my friends were murdered. Patty Brown, Terry Hatton, Ray Downey, Chris Blackwell, I can go on and on and on, my friends. And a lot of innocent humans who were those good humans, right? They're the, the people in those buildings, the people on those planes are the people who would have reached down at that escalator and helped someone up because they were good people. And they were murdered by evil Islamist terrorists, every one of them. And I'll take it even further, Charlie, we, you know, I was just doing numbers this morning on how many have, how many people have died post 9-11 from 9-11 illness. And every one of those people who has, have died in the last 20 years from 9-11 illness were also murdered by Islamist terrorists. Their lives were cut short because of this terrorist attack. So that when you say that that's the whole truth it, it, you don't just cherry pick and say oh terry and chris and patrick and ray died because that is not the whole truth yeah and it's and it's not accurate it's you, you know you you are I, like I said, I mean, I, and I, I, I can't really emphasize how deeply that changed. And, and when I share this with people now today that haven't heard that narrative, and I, and I mentioned, you know, how I learned that narrative, the whole truth, as you call it, um, you know, people pause, they stop for a second, and it really does bring to light what actually happened. And, and I, I just, you know, your heart, your courage, your vulnerability to carry that message and to carry the memory uh, is just... Uh, words uh, it's, uh, powerful I don't even know I, I can't even really do it justice Tim I mean it's it's a it's it's a it's a burden and a, and a blessing you know that yeah. you have the courage to carry and I, I think we're all so lucky because we shouldn't forget and we can't forget you know and and you I know you've been you know you're also part of the task force I think that went down to, our, to Oklahoma as well I mean you've you you have firsthand knowledge of what these events do to you know innocent people and and so I just, I, 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 it was the first time I'd heard you say it on the podcast. I knew we were going to get into it because it changed my life. And, and so as we go through this today, as you hear the rest of Tim's story, remember, remember that narrative and the whole truth, because he tells it uh, probably as, about as, as well as, as anybody I know. And, and so now this, this event, you know, um, people are rushing to the scene. I'm assuming to try and save that, that first tower, you guys are assessing 
the damage that's up there and and then then the day just gets it comes unraveled right we've got the second plane that hits and then we've got you know the fire that's burning hot and and people trying to come down had you and i can't imagine anybody was even thinking the extent of the of the catastrophe that was about to occur had the building collapsing you know really kind of hit you at all did you was that on your radar was that on people's radar screens that we've got to get people out because this building could collapse or or just we've got to get them out because the damage of this fire could get worse so the the leadership of the fire department the most experienced chiefs yep uh, including uh chief ray downey who was the chief of special operations command and the father of the uh, modern rescue company and the father of uh, the FEMA Urban Search and Rescue uh, Program. Um, so they, they got together and they actually talked about this right in the beginning. And they told us, they told the mayor that they can save everybody below the fire for sure. Uh, and that, they, that we couldn't get enough water up to put out that much fire at such a high place. So it would be very difficult to fight the fire and save people above the fire. But the fire would burn up and it would burn itself out and the building would not collapse because we've been through many of these fires in high-rise buildings and we had never experienced a collapse of a high-rise building due to fire. However, there were differences here um, the towers were actually built, designed with the thought or the notion that a plane back in the 70s, whatever the biggest plane was then, if that plane ran into the building, it was built to withstand that impact and that damage and fire. However, uh, 30 whatever years later, the planes are much bigger, they're much more powerful, and they carry much more fuel. Yeah, good point. The fuel, the fuel capacity definitely had had increased, and those guys had just taken off. Right, and, and you know they this was all in their planning. They they were not they were not stupid people, uh, um, and they did some pretty meticulous planning. Uh, and so I, I don't want to speak for them, but for for us, uh, we were of the belief that they would not collapse. Um, and so we're and so we're um we're, we're fighting the event we're getting people out, out we're trying to save as many people b- below the fire the second plane hits i mean and so you've got you've got um men and women of the new york fire department the police department first responders just responding to save as many as many people as possible and then you know kind of walk us through those those moments when things changed you know the, the second plane hits the fire is burning and and and, and this collapse occurs. I mean, I just, I can't imagine what it must have been like on that scene. So I want to talk about a couple of uh, the firefighters before Please. we get to the South Tower. Um, I got down to the bottom of that escalator, and this is important because this is what the firefighters and police officers did that day. I got to the bottom of that escalator in the North Tower, and right in front of me was firefighter Chris Blackwell from Rescue 3 in the Bronx where I used to work. And we were the Bronx guys, right? We, yeah. we we didn't follow the rules like the Manhattan guys did as much. 
uh, our gear was all burned up. Our helmets were burned up so much that they sat crooked on our head. Uh, we didn't really shave the way we were supposed to all the time. And uh, we may have had a little bit of an attitude. And so that was Chris Blackwell, right? I got to the bottom of the escalator and, and Chris is standing right there. I, and we come right like this face to face. And Chris always had the unlit stub of a cigar in his mouth, unshaven, helmets crooked. He's all, all his gear is burned I up. See, I see him. I love that. Yeah. And, and we always greeted each other. Okay. Chris was also on his time off from being a hero New York fireman. He was a paramedic in Connecticut. So all he did was with his life was save people's lives. And he was so good that we, if we ever got a patient, a victim of a fire or a building collapse or a car crash, especially a child, we would always look for Chris to put that patient in Chris's hands because we knew in his hands, they had the best shot at life. And he was that respected in the special operations community of the New York Fire Department. Everybody knew how special this guy was. And so I come down to the bottom of the escalator. We come face to face. We always greeted each other the same way. He always had the unlit stub of a cigar hanging out of the corner of his mouth to complete the caricature of him. And we came right face to face. And he would do the same thing. He would reach up like this with his hand, take the cigar out of his mouth. We both leaned in, kissed on the lips, and we both went to attention again. He put it back at attention. And we loved doing, we would do that no matter how snotty or smudged or whatever our faces were, it didn't matter. And I, we did it because we loved each other as brothers, but it was more than that. We had been through so much in our career together that I, I this man was like my blood, bro blood brother. And we also did it because it freaked all the firemen out. We thought it was pretty funny. So, <laughs> well, you can hear it, the fiber of the relationship in, in the way you describe, you know, and, and so much about really this episode is about really not just your own overcome story, but to remember, you know, so much about that day and, and, and the people and, and the personalities that were there and that aren't here now and the role they played in, in your lives and so many others. And I just, you know, I kind of felt the, the, the fibers of that relationship as you were describing, you know, kind of this, not just touching kind of greeting, but also the, the, the funny part of it to, to give your guys a rib. I mean, that's just who you guys are. And I just, I yeah. love what I, lo I love a lot about you, first of all, but what I really love about you is how careful you are in every conversation I've ever had with you to bring up the memory of the specific men and women that aren't in your life anymore and what they meant to you and what they meant to each other. And so, um, yeah, man, just, just, just take this where we take this, take this where you're going to take it. Cause that's exceptional. Thank you. So, so we did that, we did that greeting. And then Chris said to me, Timmy, this is really bad. And for us to say that to each other is significant. I said, I know Chris, be careful. I love you. And he said, I love you. And Chris turned around and he went in the stairwell and he went up. 
after he said to me, Timmy, this is really bad. He still did it, Charlie. He still turned around. He still went that stairwell and he still went up knowing that there was a very good chance he was not coming back. He still did it. Yeah. The, the, the world, you know, the universe is, is, you know, lost, lost a good one, I guess is, you know, lost a great one for, 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 for lack of any other way to describe it because the nature of that human character of, of, of him and so many others um, that, that in the face of knowing that, you know, and I just thank you for, for bringing that to the forefront, which is, I know this is going to be bad, but brother, I'm on my way to do what I do. Yeah. Ah. We, we, we took an oath, right? Firefighters, police officers, military, intelligence, we take an oath that we are committing our lives to serve and protect those who, who, who are in our community, but many of whom we don't know. Right. Right. And in our first day, we take the oath and we swear, right? It's just a matter of if you will be called one day to fulfill that oath. But we've already made that commitment, you know, we've already sworn our commitment to that oath. And on this day, September 11, 2001, 700 first responders fulfilled their oath. Wow. Right? Yeah, they did. So Chris turns and goes into the stairway my best friend Terry Hatton calls my name. I go over to Terry and he wraps his arms around me, the captain rescue one, and he squeezes me to his chest and he kisses me on the cheek. And in my ear, he says, I love you, brother. I may never see you again. And I blew him off because we had been through so many things together before and we had always come out we had cheated death so many times before together and we always came out yeah i think that's you know that's so that's so amazing because i think that is with that kind of experience you know uh you know you use the term blow them off i mean it's it's kind of disregarded you you fought a lot of fires you've been in a lot of tragedy and you guys have walked out and 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 survived and so yeah this seems bad but you don't expect it to turn from bad to worse. And you sure don't expect that those words are actually going to be fulfilled. I'm, I'm sure that's a, a, a really difficult thing. Uh, and we'll talk about all of the, all of the things that you've had to draw on to overcome the loss of so many close friends, men and women um, to get where you are today. But yeah, I mean, I, I get that. It's like, you know, we've, we've said that a few times and we're still here. So this is no different, bro. I mean, go up and do your thing and I'll see if, you know, I'll see you for a cup of coffee and we'll rinse off, you know, when this thing's over. I mean, that's kind of what I hear your, your thinking is. Yeah, that's right. But it wasn't his thinking. Yeah. He, 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 he knew it. He said those words to me. And after he said those words to me, Charlie, he turned around and he took his men and he went in the stairwell and they went up. And the reason I wanted to point out those two specific cases is because that's what the firefighters of the FDNY, the police officers of the Port Authority Police, the police officers of the New York City Police Department, that's what they all did. They knew it. 
and they still went in and went up those stairwells to help people they didn't know to fulfill their oath that is god-given yeah, it's uncommon valor it's it's not something that the it's not something that the the typical man or woman um in in this world has to commit to and and has to do it's a it's a it's an incredibly unique uh position that that you assume and a, and a really important oath that you take and to see it fulfilled in such a meaningful way is it's so powerful uh th 343 new york city firefighters were murdered by radical Islamic, Islamist terrorists on 9-11-01. Our previous largest loss of life in the New York City Fire Department was 12, which was devastating. Now it's, th just think about that number, 343. I can't, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's overwhelming, you know, to be yeah. honest with you. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, honored to be sitting in front of somebody who has has witnessed this and and can bring the depth and weight of what actually occurred and and, and really boil it down to reality for us I mean, it's it's overwhelming that number is overwhelming to be honest with you 37 port authority police officers and 23 nypd police officers who all did the same that the firemen did they went up they fulfilled their oath out of the 23 NYPD heroes, 14 of them were from their elite emergency service unit, some of the best cops in the world, the most highest trained cops in the world. Out of the th 37 Port Authority police officers, they, the Port Authority police is a small job. They have just responsibility for the World Trade Center and some of the other transportation infrastructure in New York City. So percentage-wise, their job lost more than the fire department did. So they took a huge hit in, in, in the Port Authority Police Department. Also, the largest loss of life of law enforcement in American history in one incident. And, and we, don't, we don't talk about them enough. They did the same thing. The That's fire... Right and the NYPD guys did, they ran toward it. They went up in the towers. They were rescuing and helping people um, as, as much as the other cops and a fireman were. Out of the 343 New York City firefighters, 100 of them were from our Special Operations Command, which was only 300 big. So we lost one third of our special operations command on September 11th, including our chief, Ray Downey, uh, who was also a legend himself. Um, when I'm running up the West Side Highway after the South Tower collapses, uh, off to my left, I see Chief Downey and uh, First Assistant Commissioner Bill Feehan, both my very good friends, and they both wave to me and yell, Timmy, be careful. And they would be dead within about 10 minutes of telling me. 
you couldn't have imagined you couldn't have imagined that that collapse i mean i can't even i can't even fathom what the sound and and the feeling of, of that catastrophe and and that really catastrophic kind of consequence as a result of what had occurred and 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 really i think i i just remember hearing it seeing it hearing the people that were reporting about it announced that 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 literally the, the world trade center tower was had collapsed and and what that meant and you know because you know that was that was really kind of uncovering a huge what was going to be a huge loss yeah um i i don't know we we have to remember the whole story we have to remember who did it we have to remember why they did it we have to ensure that uh that this never happens on American soil again, that we never allow a, a group like Al-Qaeda to develop um, plans to attack us on our soil. Um, and, and we have to always remember the families. And you know, the current thing is all the people who are dying from 9-11 illness, right? Well, We'll add probably another couple hundred names to uh, a wall in Long Island, which is the responders who died from 9-11 illness, including uh, Patty Brown's brother, Michael, um, who came to New York from Las Vegas to dig th through the rubble for his brother. And uh, Michael died in October from 9-11 illness. Uh, so I'll be out in Long Island um, to kind of unveil his name on the wall. And next, next week I'll be going to, you know, tr to try and protect my own health. You know, I'll be, I'll be getting uh, invasively taken care of, should I say? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we had a little scare a few weeks ago with my, my PSA count was up and we had a little scare that I might have, uh, uh, prostate cancer, but it came back. Uh, it came back okay, and uh, so I'm doing everything I can possibly do to keep myself alive, which means I keep my voice alive, which means I can talk about the truth of September 11th, uh, the whole truth of September 11th. Uh, you know, we're going to be getting through this 20th anniversary. I, I have uh, over 75 rooms reserved for friends and family and, and people from uh, the military, people from the intelligence community, um, all people who have had uh, a hand in serving justice for us, for the families, for the firefighters and police officers, taking the fight to the enemy, um, finding those responsible and ensuring that uh, uh, a group like Al-Qaeda does not develop again with the intentions of attacking Americans. So, so it's, it's so power, it's so powerful that the amount that you do and, and the amount of emotional energy that you expend in, in support of that cause, because you talked about two things we'll, we'll touch on because one of them, both of them very important actually. So the first is when we, when we talk about these numbers and we cast this net, you know, the amount of families, sons that lost fathers and mothers, daughters that lost 
fathers and mothers, spouses that lost loved ones, mother and fathers that lost children. I mean, you take the the grief net and it is it is far and it is wide and and many people that had never experienced much in the way of loss experienced great loss. I mean, companies wiped out, family members taken away or murdered, uh, as I will say now. And and you know, you've you've had to you've yourself had to spend a lot of time picking up those pieces. So first of all, you know, we do need to remember all those families, all those, all those children, uh, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandfathers, partners, you know, of, of all shapes and sizes that, and all walks of life that, that had, that suffered incredible loss. And, And you've had to be on the front lines of attending countless funerals and, and all of the things that you've done to stand with them and for them, um, as you continue and that's gotta, that's, that's gotta take a toll on you. Yeah, it certainly takes a toll on me. Um, I, I went to therapy early on and, um, it, it took me about 10 therapists till I found one that I felt was going to be helpful. And, and she taught me about compartmentalization, uh, which I didn't know back then, but you know, in my grief, I mean, we were doing 20 funerals a day. Uh, in the, 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 not just the grief of going to a funeral, but the guilt of not being able to make 15 of the 20 funerals that day of your friends. Um, but she taught me compartmentalization and how I would allow myself, and I, I did this, I would allow myself to grieve for a, a certain block of time every day. And then I would get a stiff upper lip, I'd stand up, and I would try to have a productive day in, in other ways. I used to fly, I started working for the feds in 2002. So I was flying back and forth to DC and whenever I would get on the plane, I would put the window shade down and I would lean my head against the window shade and put on the noise canceling headphones. And I would put on Andrea Bocelli's voice Hmm. and I would cry for an hour where nobody could see me, my head was buried and I would just cry for the loss of my friends. But when those wheels hit the ground, I took Bocelli off, I wiped my face off, and I raised the shade up, and I went to work. And that simple thing of notion of compartmentalization uh, helped me tremendously. So I, I highly recommend therapy, but you have to be with a therapist that you're comfortable with, uh, which is the harder part of it, I think. Um, And again, I'll take it back to where we started out with the conversation, mission and purpose, mission and purpose in your life. And whatever that means, and if you can't find it, go start helping people who are less fortunate than you. Uh, Go join, join your volunteer firehouse, become an EMT or paramedic. Or, or become a paid firefighter or, uh, you know, do, do things in your life that matter. Go to the soup kitchen and help out. And it will start bringing back your purpose and mission 
uh, it, it will begin to light a fire under you again. Um, I know so many of our hero military who got blown up over and over in the global war on terror. Uh, and then when they came back, um, they committed suicide because they could not find their purpose and mission back here in America and they lost their unit and their structure. So get for all those who are military out there, get involved with your local fire department, whatever that means and help them and let them help you. It's, it's the, it's the, it's a similar brotherhood to being in the military sisterhood to being in the military. Um, I, I think that's really important. And then for, for, for me, Charlie, me personally, my family was worried about me and suicide back in 2001 and 2002. Uh, I, I never had that in me and I will never have that in me to ever, to ever do something like that. Um, but I, I cannot talk about that without talking about my faith in God and that God obviously did not want to take me in 2001. He didn't want to bring me home. He wanted me to stay here. Why? To have this voice for my friends. To speak of them, of their heroism, to take care of their families, to be an example for their children who lost their father. Even 20 years later, uh, this year, a couple of the, I call them 9-11 kids, even though they're in their 20s. Yeah, right. Um, they gave me the, the nickname, The Shepherd. And in their groups, they know if they have a problem or if they have a question, uh, they're like, they say to the other kids, you know, this and that. And the other kids say, call The Shepherd. And they call me. And what a, what a purpose. I mean, what a, what a, I mean, those kids are very, they are very lucky to have you. And when we talk about overcoming, um, you know, and, and the things that, that we, that we've done and thank you for, you know, because so many people do suffer in silence and, and, you know, overcoming, you know, a, a national tragedy to being on the front line of that, to overcoming the loss of so many brothers and sisters and friends to being on the front line of, of, surviving that and then finding your purpose and you know i think you know you described a couple of things one is feeling your feelings you know that that that, that feeling those feelings and knowing the sadness and not trying to stuff that down or numb it out or cover it up or you know to put on that song and to have those tears come dripping down the side of your face mm -hmm. and 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 mourn that loss and then take the next right healthy action for your life so when those wheels touch down it's it's I've got a purpose and I've got to show up for whoever I've got to show up for. And so we can do, you know, my friend, George Mumford, who, who's a performance expert, he's worked with some of the top athletes like Jordan and, and Brian, Kobe Bryant. He, he always says, you know, can we get to that place where we can hold the hope and the hurt in our, in our lives and, and know that we can have both and, and be okay. And thank you for, for sharing both of those. And I wanted to ask you one last thing about your own recovery, you know, of overcoming all of this tragedy and, and, and using the purpose and passion you have to fuel that. Um, 
how important has connection and community been to you? I mean, you know, they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And, and I know you've been a, a bit of glue or a shepherd, so to speak. And I know people that, that are trapped with emotions, they're trapped with uh, adversity in their lives. They, we have this initial, we have this need to be connected, but this feeling of wanting to be alone. And, and how did you, how, how important was connection and community, um, in your own personal recovery and having to overcome this stuff, staying connected? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everything, um, community connection. And, and it was hard for me because my, my community was taken from me on September 11th. All my, right. all my right. male friends, were murdered you know i those i mean that that's who i hung out with all the time i i didn't have very much outside of the fire department guys um in new york here and um in in 2004 i retired in 2004 so in those years 2004 2005 i would say were my worst time my lowest time my darkest time my my time of being lost and i was in new york and i didn't have any guy friends and i thought what i needed was to find good quality men like i lost and in order to replace them i need to find other good quality men and that's not an easy thing to do when you're getting you know a little bit older right Right. Yeah. We don't have the ball games and coaching the kids yeah. and, you know, kind of all of the thing, you know, going to the cool school functions it, it, as we get older, you know, it, it is, it, there's not as many places. I, it, you, you it really struck a chord because, because you did lose, you lost the community. Yeah. And, and I was searching for that, you know, and I was open to it and I was trying, but it, it was going nowhere. And I, I was going to a little Italian restaurant near my apartment here in Midtown and uh, food was excellent. The two, two brothers from Italy, really nice guys. My, they became my friends. But I would go there and sit at the bar, and there was this very cute girl, Deb, behind the, Deborah behind the bar. And she was always, like, bouncing around behind the bar, always happy, always a smile on her face. And it just, it just filled my heart to go just be, be near her, to be around her. And one time she said to me, what are you doing when I get off? And I was like, whatever you're doing, Deb. <laughs> well answered. Great answer. She's very cute. And she said, wait for me. I got to do some things. Wait for me. I'm going to take you somewhere. So we got off. She took me out. We went down the block a little bit. And she takes me to an apartment building. And we, it's a walk up. We go up to the fifth floor. And she knocks on the door. And this, this guy opens the door. Um, Deborah's skin was a little bit olive, dark, curly brown hair. And the dude that answered the door was like white Irish guy. And he has a baby in his arm. And he get big smile on his face and he says, come on in. And he's like, sit on the couch next to me, sit on the couch. So I sat down next to him. This, this apartment is like a tiny one bedroom. And so the music is on. And the next thing I know, uh, uh, Matt's wife, Lorana, puts a cold beer in my hand and one in Matt's hand and he's bouncing Liam, the baby on his knee. And then another knock on the door and two more girls come in and then another knock on the door and two more girls come in. And now there are these eight gorgeous women in front of us and they keep turning the music up and they all start dancing. 
and Matt says to me, not bad, huh, for a Friday night. And I was like, holy cow, what is going on here? And in, in the end, I, I, I tell this story. They, these women, these eight women become my friends. And they're Brazilian women. So they, have a, they all have these huge hearts and this brightness about them. They took me under their wing, Charlie, and, and they loved me and gave me a smile. And they took me to Brazil twice to where they grew up. So my point is with this, it, it brought me out of my doldrums. It brought me out of my dark place. It brought me to a, a, a place where I looked forward to tomorrow. And I look forward to seeing friends again. I always thought it was supposed to be, you know, I was going to replace my guys with other quality men. And, you know, God has a sense of humor sometime. At, uh, sometime. He sure does. Yeah. He sure does. He's like, he's like, no, no, no. You're going to meet these eight beautiful Brazilian women who are going to give you more love than you've had since you were a child with your mom. And, and they did. Uh, and, and then to bring the story all the way around, you know, when you brought up Jay Redmond before Navy SEAL, you know, it took me a, a decade to, to meet someone of Jay's quality who was like Terry Hatton or Chris Blackwell or Patty Brown or Ray Downey or Bill Fian, you know, a, a man of that quality. So it, it does, these things don't happen on our timeline and it's hard to hold on and be patient. But you know what? I did meet Jay Redman and Jay Redman has become one of my very best friends. And he is every bit a quality man as my friends who were murdered on September 11th. So you can, you can find it again, it just takes time. You just have to figure out how to get from A to B and hold on. And I am living a whole new life of laughter and love and light again. And I am so happy that I never chose a different way out of it. Well, you've served, you've served the world, you know, you've served the, the memory of, of your fallen brothers and sisters and their families. And, you know, it, it, the, the, I, I, the patience that it takes, you know, that, that if you just stay in the game, you know, that is, that is the whole idea behind resilience and, and surviving and being is just, you know, just to stay in the game. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a cliche I know, but we do just live a day at a time and we can make the most of it or make the most of, make the worst of it. Um, it depends on the choices that we make and what you've chosen to do has been so selfless. And, you know, before we, we wrap up, I just like, you know, is there, how can people support you? How can people, how can our community, you know, aid in, in the things that you're doing? You know, what, what are the, the causes that you continue to, to fight for and be a voice of? Um, and how can people connect with you and, and provide, you know, some continued support for you? So um, my by far favorite charity, uh, and I have a few, but um, the mission uh, that the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has taken on uh, is very near to my heart. Um, t2t.org it's this officially the Stephen Siller Tunnel to Towers Foundation uh, Stephen Siller was a firefighter murdered on September 11th and his siblings uh, started this foundation 
initially to pay off his five children's uh, uh, more uh, um, college uh, education, but they very quickly raised that money. And so they decided to start building smart homes for catastrophically injured military. So they've been doing that now for at least 15 years, but they have a list of a thousand still who need homes. They also now pay off the mortgages of fire and police line of duty deaths. They pay off the mortgage if their family has a child under 16 years old. And the reason for that is so that that child is not forced out of their home just because the breadwinner uh, was killed in the line of duty serving um, America. So they'll go in very quickly and pay off the mortgage of that family. I'm, I'm very involved in, in, in that work. Um, currently, Frank Siller, the, the chairman and CEO of the foundation and 9-11 family member is walking from the Pentagon to Shanksville to the World Trade Center. Wow, amazing, he is yeah. The, 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 68 the... years old. Uh, he had a heart, at heart attack last year and he's coming back strong and he's walking in memory of his little brother, but also for all the first responders uh, who have died, who were murdered on 9-11, who have passed away from 9-11 illness since, and who in our military, our heroes in the military who have given um, th their actual limbs uh, in just seeking justice for us and for America. Um, a book that goes along with that, that was written by Doc Mike Brown, Patty Brown's brother, called What Brothers Do. Mm. What Brothers Do by Michael Everett Brown uh, is a, a very well-written story of our time after 9-11 and what we went through. Very sadly, Michael passed away in October from 9-11 illness, from breathing the dust, searching for his brother in the rubble. But before Michael died, he asked me to lead the charge with his book and to ensure that people don't forget about his brother, about himself, and about what we went through. And all proceeds from the sale of What Brothers Do goes to the Tunnel Two Towers Foundation. Um, it's an excellent book. It's an excellent read. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on the Tunnel Two Towers website. Um, so that's, that's what I would love to do with the rest of my life, Charlie, is to work with Tunnel to Towers and take care of our American heroes who protect us, who serve us, who keep us safe, so that every cop, every fireman and military member in America knows that we've got their back if they make the ultimate sacrifice. And there is nothing we can do that says never forget better than that. Well, I love it. And we'll, 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 
please throw your support behind these incredible causes. I mean, because those shoulders that you see on, on Tim Brown are, are wide and strong, but they carry a lot of weight. He, you're, you're out there really using your voice and your presence to help so many people and, and share and carry their memory. Um, you know, being in your presence for just a few days uh, changed me forever. Your, your power uh, of courage and vulnerability and, and what all the things that you've overcome is such a lesson to so many of us. Because as you said, I mean, you do have a choice. You can crawl in a hole, you can make unhealthy choices, um, and you can miss out on the gifts of life and, and the gifts of giving. And, and your purpose and your passion are so big now. Tim, I, I know it's been an exhausting day this time of year for you. I just have such respect and, and really just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking your time to come on over, come out loud, share your story, and, and to be the friend that you are to so many, man. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie. God bless you, Charlie. God bless all your listeners. And thanks for listening. And never forget the stories, the heroes, the horrors, and the whole truth about 9-11.